Hi friends, welcome to Preacher, a podcast designed around the reality that many of our churches are shrinking because we haven't created a place where everyone can belong. So if you're seeing that reality in your own church, or you've experienced that and left the church, this podcast is for you. Welcome. I'm your host, Jen Hale Christie, and this is season four. We have a wonderfully supportive and encouraging Patreon community. Sarah, Lauren, Dave, Steve, Mark, Sheila, and Tom, I thank the world of you all, and I thank our God every time I remember you. If you are a listener who hasn't yet joined our Patreon community, now is a great time. Your support keeps this good work going, so thank you. Links are in the show notes. Friends, we are living in a truly remarkable time. Never before has the future seemed so uncertain. And what better time to be dwelling in the book of Acts among a people who were living in unprecedented times. May we find ourselves in these stories as we find ourselves in God's story. Our guest preacher today is Caitlin Shetler. Caitlin's background is in social work and her methodology is trauma-informed. The sermon she shares with us today will likely be a different way of reading the Saul-Paul conversion story than you are used to. It certainly was for me. And by the end of it, I felt awake to some realities in the biblical narrative that I'd been asleep to previously. In our conversation after the sermon, we unpack some things and explore this a bit more, so stick around for that. Now, let's take just a moment to center ourselves, to breathe deeply, and open ourselves to what God's Spirit might want to reveal to us today. Let's hear a word. I was invited by Jen to speak on Acts 9, 1-31, which, growing up, was a foundational story in my faith tradition. It's an exciting and harrowing tale of a murderer turned Christian, a fundamentalist accuser turned preacher, a spiritually blind man turned woke. The conversion story of Paul sets the stage for the exponential growth of the church and at least half of the letters we read in the New Testament. To say Paul was a prolific writer and influential figure is seriously understating how he is portrayed in scripture and in our churches. Next to Jesus, Paul was a man held up as model Christian. So obviously, his origin story was told with all the grandiosity and supernatural exaggeration a youth minister could muster. And before I continue, I don't want to downplay the importance of this story to the Christian faith. There are several entry points in understanding God's nature in a story like this, and all of them are valid. But I am wondering if you as the listener will allow me to examine this in a different way. My goal isn't to necessarily unsettle our view of the Paul-Saul metamorphosis, but to read scripture in a way that connects the experiences of the wounded to the lessons of God. When voices get lost in the majority narrative, or when storytellers mimic the main character's point of view, we run the risk of bypassing trauma and thus bypassing God. So there are three main events in this story. The first, Paul is described as 
this religious man hell-bent on rounding up and imprisoning those who followed Jesus. The words used are really murderous threats. He he is confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he's blinded. Second, he's approached by Ananias, who heals him. He's then baptized. And then finally, he goes out and starts to preach, now the one finding himself in danger of others' murderous threats. It's a wild ride from beginning to end, and obviously one that is very compelling for Christians finding themselves in need of evangelistic courage. But one thing I always ask when digesting any biblical story is whose voice is missing. It's clear that the author of Acts is encouraging a community to persist in the face of persecution. And the Paul story is rife with lessons on courage and commitment. We all know the importance of Paul's conversion to the early church. And I'm pretty comfortable saying that his involvement in ministry was vital to the growth of Christianity itself. But I'm not quite comfortable letting Paul lead this narrative. See, Acts 9, 1-31 doesn't tell an origin story about a titan of Christianity. Instead, it tells the story of a man who has enacted much harm and trauma upon a community. When we are introduced to Paul, he is at his best an accomplice and at his worst an abuser. It is no wonder that God chose to limit his physical sight and touch his conscience in such an abrupt and disorienting way. For three days, Paul was blinded and he didn't eat or drink. Ananias had to be persuaded by God himself to go to Paul, and even then he went with many reservations. And then later on in the story, Barnabas had to practically beg the apostles to accept him into their group. Throughout this whole narrative, time and time again, we find Paul's actions to be so egregious that those he affected had a very difficult time accepting his transformation, even when God directly told them to. So I want you to think about it. Can you imagine a trauma wound so deep that God's voice wouldn't be enough to fully convince you? I think about Ananias here, who must have been in frequent conversation with God before Paul's conversion. His yes, Lord, falls very easily off of his lips. Ananias, described as a disciple, argues with God about the judiciousness of healing this man. It doesn't say so in scripture, but I wonder if it took three days for Paul to find healing because it took so long to convince his healer. When you start to read this story through a trauma lens, which is how I encourage you to read most of God's stories, there are so many important threads to be unraveled. God blinded Paul, but the restoration of his sight could only be provided through the hands of his victims. Paul's past actions made him suspect to a persecuted and marginalized community, and he had to rely on the grace of those he harmed to save his life over and over again. Later in Acts, it's revealed that Paul brings an offering for the poor in Jerusalem. And while we don't know the exact timeline on this, it's interesting that this happens after being away for some time. 
we can hypothesize many reasons for this, but it does make me wonder if he knew that the community was still weary of him and that he waited to come after some healing had already taken place. In the end, though, we can only use our theological imaginations regarding how Paul handled the realities of his harm and abuse. I think it's natural for us to paint him in a charitable light, and it makes sense to me that trauma is the last thing that people want to mention when telling the story of Paul the Apostle. But if we ignore it, if we let him off the hook or wrap this in a bow of restoration, we do a major disservice to those in our community who have been victims of violence and abuse. Sure, Paul's conversion is comforting to those seeking grace and reconciliation themselves, but for those seeking reparation and justice, it is shockingly unfinished. There are no long apologies noted anywhere in the New Testament. Paul's letters do not talk about reconciliation or regret or reparations on his part, and he stepped into a leadership role fairly immediately after his abuse came to light. For survivors of sexual and domestic violence, survivors of spiritual and physical abuse, and trauma survivors, the whole story of Paul in many ways is triggering. It's a story that centers the forgiveness of the abuser without giving credence to the story of the survivor. This may seem like a bizarre interpretation, but to those recovering from trauma, it's more common than the church feels comfortable admitting. I say all the time that repentant abusers should not seek leadership or pastoral roles, as abuse often correlates with power and ministry. So you can see why the story of Paul presents a major conflict for me. Why would God allow this narrative without first addressing the trauma? Sure, Paul loses vision and he's persecuted. And yes, his life is not comfortable and he does give up a fair amount of religious power after his conversion. But his history of violence is just a footnote. Couldn't there be one or two verses outlining his regret and apology? How did he make this right with the community he harmed? These are just a few questions that I wrestle with. But there is one thing I know for sure about God. God is a God of the oppressed, the marginalized and victimized. Time and time again, we see God standing in the gap for women who are about to be stoned, for the sick, the dying, and the disabled. Jesus came for the burdened and heavy laden, and he had no qualms about using his authority to disavow religious leaders and abusers. And because God's nature is fixed, it would be surprising that he let Paul get away with traumatizing the community by just putting him in charge without any sort of reparation around that harm. So it's here that we really need to put pieces together for ourselves. How do we read the Paul story in light of trauma and the importance of centering survivors' voices? And why do we even need to do this in the first place? It's here that I posit scripture is made for the brokenhearted and the traumatized. Understanding that is key to understanding the heart of God. I firmly believe that this will be how we 
that, that this will inform how we read and teach the stories we are given. So here are my suggestions for those seeking to reframe this narrative and to make it more accessible to the wounded. First, when handling any kind of story that involves trauma, never lead with the perspective of the harmer, but with the perspective of the harmed. This will firmly get you in the mindset of God and help you process the story in a way that lifts up the marginalized. Second, recognize that the biblical narrative is the Cliff Notes version of the actual story. People are people, and any retelling of a story that loses the humanity of the situation is a poor retelling of the story. Finally, sometimes the Bible isn't the one that places characters on pedestals. That's often us and church tradition. It is okay for us to look at Paul and say, he didn't do the work. His leadership was potentially traumatizing and triggering, and he should have focused more on repairing harm than restoring his power. We can say these things and still respect the story of God, and I would encourage us to do so. I think it's absolutely necessary to allow stories to be uncomfortable. I think it's absolutely necessary to tell these uncomfortable stories in ways that unsettle the powerful and bring comfort to the oppressed, even when that story is the Apostle Paul's. This sermon may not be a long word, but I do think it's an important one. So here's my prayer. May the God of survivors heal trauma bring justice to the oppressed, and shake up the status quo that keeps our churches from being accessible to the least of these. May we be courageous enough to challenge our own preconceptions around the biblical narrative, and in that courage find those who need to hear about God the healer. May we seek to understand God's heart and love each other fiercely and vulnerably. And finally, May we always be kind and gracious to the hurting. I'm here with Caitlin Shetler. Thank you so much for being here, Caitlin. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Before we start talking about your sermon, tell us a little more about who you are and what life uh, maybe used to look like before the quarantine, maybe even what it does look like now with the quarantine, whatever you want to share. Sounds great. Uh, Well, my name is Caitlin. I am currently in Nashville, Tennessee. I have a wonderful four-year-old daughter, and um, I'm married to a wonderful husband, Dave, and we have been, I have been in Tennessee for a while now. Um, I came right after college where I went to school at Harding University and then came here. I have my master's in social work, which is why I got here to Tennessee. And then I have just stayed and worked a lot of different jobs. Um, Right now, I am lucky to be able to work from home. So as far as my work life goes, the quarantine hasn't changed that much other than now my husband works here. (laughs) And my daughter has been just running around because she can't go to preschool anymore. So Yeah. um, yeah, so that's like super quick about me. Okay. All right. So social work is your background and that's your like day-to-day job paying your, that's your, that's your vocation. But, um, but you also are in ministry. You're a preacher, you're a poet. 
<laughs> I'm a I'm a preacher and a poet, um, which both of those labels I think I acquired um, a, a little bit uh, randomly and surprisingly. So I did not I did not seek them out, but they sought me out. Mm. Yes. Okay. So the poetry, I think I was first exposed to it with your Mary poem um, around Christmas time that went totally viral. Um, I read an article, a blog post by a guy in our in our Church of Christ Fellowship who compared it to like anything else, any other anything in the Churches of Christ that had been shared. Like nothing had gotten the level of shares and views that this poem that you wrote got. I mean, it just went viral. Um, tell us a little bit about that poem. Yeah, it it was wild. It was a out of body experience, most definitely. I have been writing poetry. I I enjoy writing, and most of my writing I do will um, be on Facebook or Instagram, and a lot of it is just writing exactly what I'm thinking. Um, So I have a lot of practice with that. And (laughs) uh, about a couple years ago, I guess, I started writing poems. And they they were just things that I felt like I needed to say, but I didn't know how to say it mm-hmm. in like a longer status. And I, I really couldn't figure out how to say it in like these little essays that I was doing. And poetry just seemed to be the way to speak to what was going on inside mm-hmm. of my spirit. So um, yeah, a couple people had been reading my poems and then it just took off. Uh, surprisingly, I, and it really did, it really did shock me just because a lot of times when I write, I just write for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do like putting it out there because often what'll happen is I'll get people who say, oh, that, that was something that I was feeling or that spoke to me or I didn't know really how to, how to write that. So with the Mary poem, that started happening just at a quicker pace than I was expecting. And I, I think it's, I think part of it is just because it spoke to a lot of things that a lot of people are going through. I mean, it's to women and it, it spoke to relationships and relationship with motherhood, relationship with God, relationship with men and the church and yeah. that. And, and I think a lot of people have had the same kind of experiences yeah. and it was just another way to, um, for them to connect with that yeah. and have that expressed. Yeah, I think that's right. It was crafted in such a creative way with so many entry points for people. Um, Definitely like lots of points of connection if you do find yourself as a mother, um, you know, and have had the experience of pregnancy and in those early months, um, but also experiences of of power difference, you know, gendered power difference in the church. And, um, and I think maybe maybe that's part of why it it did go so viral because it had all these entry points um, for people. And it just, um, it was really striking. Um, the perspective and the the image of Mary was so, um, so different from ones that we 
maybe typically see. Um, so anyway, um, I know we've got a whole sermon to talk about, but I just wanted to, to bring that up and, and give you a chance to share more about that. Okay, so we're going to jump into your sermon. Um, so talking about the, the Saul-Paul conversion, which um, for those of us raised in the church, this is a very, very familiar story. Um, your sermon uh, was definitely the first, I, I'm pretty sure it was the first trauma-informed, like very overtly trauma-informed sermon that we've had on the podcast. And I'm pretty sure it's the first time I've ever heard and seen this story through this particular lens. Mm -hmm. So um, thank you for opening our eyes to hearing this um, story from a really different perspective. I, I really do think we need this. So you have, you know, Saul breathing out murderous threats, has an encounter with the risen Jesus, is healed by a Jesus follower, and then goes on a zealous mission to preach and teach and winds up uh, now on the receiving end of, of those murderous threats. Um, and I think a lot of times we just gloss right over this story, um, gloss right over the abuse and the harm, um, and are quick to um, elevate Paul um, to a pretty high pedestal. You know, I mean, he did found a lot of churches. He wrote a lot of letters. And yet, uh, he was persecuting Christians. And we just gloss right over that. It, or if, if we do treat it at all, it's more of like, oh, wow, like, look at the power of God that he can, his heart could be so changed. But we're totally neglecting and ignoring the victims, the survivors, the, you know, the people that were abused. Absolutely. And, and the fact that there are no apologies mentioned in script, I had never noticed that. Um, and then, you know, even though we don't hear any specific apologies, the story really just centers on, on the forgiveness and moving on. And, and I just, man, it was so fascinating. I feel like my, the scales fell from my eyes as I was listening to your sermon, like, wow, how did I not see this about Paul? Um, so I, I had some questions like, um, you talked about, you know, why would God allow this, um, this narrative without addressing the trauma? I was hoping that I haven't gone back to that text in a while. So I was hoping that when I went to prepare for this, oh, okay. Like I already knew my feelings around it. I already knew, um, I already knew sort of what I was going to say, but I was holding out hope that I could go to a later part of the text of either acts or look through um, some of Paul's letters and say, be able to wrap it up in this mm. like lovely bow and say, <laughs> but look, you know, come over to Ephesians and he says this, or look at the end of acts. And the closest that I got is um, when he went back to kind of tell his story when he was on trial and I'm looking through his words, and still, there's no apology. There is no, I feel bad about this. It's it's just basically like, this is who I was, and now this is who I am. And, mm -hmm. and that's about it. So when I say, like, creative, imaginative, I mean, which I think can be uncomfortable for us, I mean, having a theological imagination that takes what we know about God and what we know about God's nature and then figures, you know what? I don't know if we have the complete story mm. that is written in scripture. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's uncomfortable for um, if we come from a background where I think the story has always been told just as written mm -hmm. um, and that's it, 
where we can't read any humanity into it, mm-hmm. I think that traps us a little yeah. bit. One of the things that keeps me engaged in in scripture, keeps me engaged with God is being able to humanize every experience that I read. And I, I think it, you know, in part of that sermon, I, I talk about the importance of reading scripture every time with a trauma lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and why is that important? And, and my, my suggestion would be to people who are, who are preaching, who are trying to interpret God's word for other people would be, that's how you have to lead with it every time. Because otherwise the people that you keep around who for the story are people who already, who already have access to God. I Mm. think the people who are, who will most benefit from a trauma informed lens are the people who are done with God anyway. Mm. And so I think it really depends one on your audience, I guess, if you decide not to do it, you know, maybe, okay, you decide not to read the Bible in a trauma informed lens. That's fine. But also kind of my point is that is God's heart. I think you can see that through everything that God does and is. And so it's my feeling that if you go into a story and you don't see it, it's, it's because you're missing something. Huh. That, and that's kind of how eventually I ended up approaching this. I was not happy I was not happy. I didn't have a bow. (laughs) And, and reading through this again and again reminded me um, of the times I myself struggle, struggle with scripture and struggle with Bible reading and struggle with stories. And um, as a, you know, as a social worker, as um, someone who has like not only an academic background, but a personal background and also has a, um, you know, I'm in community with a lot of people who have experienced trauma. I am, um, my, my current job right now is extremely, um, you know, trauma centered, um, and survivor centered. And so it, to me, I cannot divorce my faith from that lens. Mm. And so if I'm going to keep my faith, I have to do it through that lens, which leads to very creative lenses, I guess, to the text. I was going to say interpretations, but I, I, I come back to believe again that if God's heart is with the oppressed, if God's heart is with the marginalized, if God meets us where our trauma is, then when we, I know I said this already, but when we see a story where that piece is missing, we're not reading it in the way that it happened. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. I, I have so, so many threads going on in my head right now, and I'm going to try to weave them all together into something coherent, but thinking on my feet here, so we'll see. Um, I it just, it, it strikes me that like, 
you know, when you use the words oppressed and marginalized, those are so familiar to us in a theological sense. Um, and we can grab those and say, yes, like, you know, the God of Israel is the God of the oppressed, the God who took this, like, you know, not even a tribe of people yet and made them a tribe and who cared for them and who brought them out of slavery. And, you know, like, um, God was all about the underdog from the beginning. And it was when the underdog insisted on having some power, like we need a king, we need, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we want to, we want to have what our neighbors have. (laughs) We, um, and we want to have a sense of power and a structure. And God said, okay, but there's going to be armies and, you know, your men are going to have to go off and fight in war and they're going to die. And, you know, all these things are going to happen and they're going to take attacks from you. And, and the Israelites said, that's fine. We want that. We want a king. We want a king. You know, like that's when everything started going downhill. Um, and I think there's just kind of this like ebb and flow of, of, um, of power struggles and of oppression and not wanting to be the oppressed and not wanting to just, um, depend on God to help bring up out of that oppression, but instead to kind of grab power for oneself and, and all, and all along the way, there is a lot of trauma. I think there's so, so much trauma in the Hebrew Bible that we don't talk about. And like, at least that I'm familiar with, like when I was doing, you know, graduate studies and looking at commentaries and stuff, I didn't see the word trauma, but there's so much trauma there. Um, and, and even here in the story with, with Paul, with Saul, you know, like it, we can read this and and there's a kind of this faceless sense of like, oh, well, he was persecuting some followers. We don't really know who they were. Yes, we do. They laid their coats at his feet when Stephen was stoned. Like he was right there. Like one, <laughs> Stephen was stoned right in front of him and he approved right. of it. So right. we can't even like say, oh, well, maybe they, you know, maybe they didn't know anybody that Paul had directly persecuted. Yeah, they did. All that to say like, that when you use the words trauma-informed or talk about trauma, that language might be relatively new to us in a scriptural or theological sense. But what you are describing is something that's always been there in the biblical narrative. Um, and and when you when you put that label on it, um, it might be shocking for us. Um, and yet it is true. And yes, you are being creative in this sermon, but you are calling out something that's actually there. Like, how could it not be? When he persecuted these Christians, how could they not be upset and not want to let him in, not want him to be healed and be one of them and be, you know, be an emissary or an ambassador for the way? Absolutely. And and two, I think you're right. And don't mishear me when I say, you know, imaginative and creative. I, I absolutely agree. I'm not making it up. It is a reality. It is something that we know today just about humanity and people and and what trauma looks like and what, um, you know, mental health and, and all of that. It's only creative because it's been ignored for years and years and years. Yes. Which, I mean, I feel like we could go on a very long interview on why that would be, but um, <laughs> definitely, it, it's definitely, it, it's there, but it's just really been hidden. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing that to light. I really feel like mm-hmm. I have woken up to things in the text that I just didn't realize were there or were, you know, I was ignoring or asleep to. Um 
So I, I really appreciate um, in particular your, your blessing at the end um, that we will be courageous enough to, to allow those, you know, preconceptions to be challenged and that um, we would courageously, you know, hear, hear stories um, from the biblical narrative and from the world, um, uh, stories that we need to hear about God the healer. I mean, when I asked you to preach on this text, I had no idea what it would bring up for you um, and where you would be led in this. And, um, you know, it just, I don't know, it reminds me again of, well, so for our listeners who don't know this, um, you know, you and I had this back and forth this week about about the sermon because you didn't think you were going to be able to get it done in time. And I was like, oh boy, I'm going to have to scramble and get this done because it's going live next week. Like, what are we going to do? And we had this whole back and forth. And in the end, I mean, you preached a sermon that I never would have come close to um, because I don't have that lens. I don't have this background. And um, it just, man, it speaks to the power of God's spirit, um, to God's activity in this, even in something as, you know, what didn't seem very spiritual, picking a text and saying, here, you, you go with this one. Um, but obviously, like, you were the person to preach this text um, and to, you know, to struggle with Paul um, on our behalf <laughs> and let us listen in. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, we're out of time, but um, thank you for sharing your heart and for staying with it, um, for your tremendous time and energy, um, and for delivering for us this beautiful sermon. I hope we'll have you back again. Oh, definitely. I would love it. And thank you so much. If today you find yourself on the outside, without a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation, may you lean into the truth that you're always welcome in God's community. If you are one who wears the name minister, pastor, elder, shepherd, or are otherwise known as a faith leader, may you extend God's yes to those you might have said no to in the past. May you be emboldened and encouraged to honor the space that God has already created for all. Let's build bigger tables together. If something in you was stirred today, reach out. Hearing from you really does help to shape the future of this podcast. You'll have the greatest impact and opportunities for engagement by joining our Patreon community by clicking that Become a Patron button on our page, patreon.com slash Christie. And I would love for you to connect with me on Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook at Christie. Lastly, you would really help others to connect with this work if you would subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you next time.